Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Grayscale is the world's largest digital asset manager, which has put the company at the cutting edge of legal and regulatory questions touching on crypto assets. And it's had a unique seat at seeing policy in action, or as they would perhaps argue, inaction concerning rulemaking. But Grayscale is a participant in the regulatory arena as well, and has captured the public's attention as of late in a high-profile dispute with the SEC, which erupted after the agency rejected Grayscale's request to offer an exchange-traded fund for Bitcoin, and by extension, a regulated but more mainstream entry point into the Bitcoin market. Now, the SEC's denial has prompted Grayscale to initiate a lawsuit against the SEC for its denial of its ETF application, with arguments scheduled next week. So, naturally, we at The Beat took an interest in it all and wanted to get a better picture for our audience as to just what the key arguments are in the dispute. And to help walk me through it all, we couldn't have better guests. I am delighted to have Michael Sonnenschein, the CEO of Grayscale, here on the show, along with Grayscale's general counsel, Craig Salm, to walk through the dispute and what it can mean for crypto regulation for not only Grayscale, but the wider crypto industry. Michael and Craig, it's so great to have you both on the show. I know a lot of people know this already, but for those who may not be as steeped into crypto, Maybe uh, can you walk us through a little bit about what Grayscale does and then obviously a bit about GBTC? Yeah, Chris, it's great to be here. Thanks for having Craig and I on. Um, always happy to chat all things Grayscale and GBTC. So who we are and what we do. So Grayscale, as you said, we're a digital currency asset manager. We're the largest in the world. We manage about $20 billion. And Grayscale dates back to 2013. We realized Bitcoin, crypto as an overall asset was going to become an overall asset class. People would want to have access to it, but where do you buy it? How do you store it, safe keep it, et cetera, would be challenges. And so we kind of looked at existing investment managers and the ways in which they were bringing products to market and thought, what better way to bring access to crypto than to borrow from established practices? So we're a U.S.-based company making, making use of existing U.S. financial rules and regulations and began in 2013 with a long-only passive Bitcoin fund that actually has the same legal structure as you see for a lot of other commodity-based products on the market like the gold ETF, GLD, and others. And we've since gone on to build out the Grayscale family of products today uh, to encompass 19 different investment vehicles. Uh, but I'm sure in this conversation, we'll focus primarily on the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust or ticker uh, GBTC, which is where it trades, uh, given that it's our longest running and flagship product. And of, uh, of course, and very importantly, is uh, the world's largest Bitcoin fund. It holds about three and a half percent of all Bitcoin in circulation. That is not inconsequential, and that explanation is super helpful. So let's try to get then into the details. 
you've been looking to convert GBTC to a spot Bitcoin ETF, which allows investors to uh, invest in the current price of Bitcoin and really offers similar exposure uh, for investors the same way they would have uh, exposure to stocks in a stock ETF. Um, but maybe you could dig a little bit more into that. Um, I understand that spot Bitcoin ETFs offer some advantages over, say, existing futures Bitcoin ETFs. But I'd like to hear a bit more as to why you'd like to convert it from your current product. I mean, what are you looking for and how is this different from what you have now? Sure. So I think in, in many senses, we've seen here in the U.S. a lot of product innovation and there are now thousands of ETFs on the market. Typically, ETFs are wrapping up into a product structure for investors, exposure to an individual commodity, a theme, a certain subset of investable assets. And so we have ETFs that give exposure to gold, to oil, to healthcare stocks, you know, the list goes on and on. And I think in our case, um, we feel that it has never been a more important time to give investors um, a spot Bitcoin ETF, because for some investors, it still can be tough to figure out, again, where to buy, store, transfer Bitcoin, and they can instead have that Bitcoin exposure in a regulated wrapper right alongside all of the other assets that they invest in. GBTC was always envisioned to eventually become an ETF. That's why I said we purposefully chose the same grantor trust structure that you see for other commodity ETFs all the way back to 2013 when we initially structured the product. And so our team has done something innovative here, which is that, you know, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was originally structured as a private placement. We made use of existing securities laws to bring it into the public market and assign it a ticker symbol. So that was 2015, it, it you know, debuted as GBTC. And it actually went even a step further and became an SEC reporting company on a voluntary basis in 2020. So in many senses, a lot of investors may think GBTC is in fact an ETF because it trades you know, every single day, 9.30 to 4, at prices dictated by the market. But to be clear, it's not an ETF. An ETF would effectively track the underlying price of the asset it holds. But in the case of GBTC, because it's not yet an ETF, it is subject to fluctuations based on market forces that have the shares trade sometimes above the value of the Bitcoin it holds, or in other instances, below the value of the Bitcoin it holds. So it's a really, really important distinction. And one that we know that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about is one we're fighting for for investors. Yeah, you know, that's 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 super helpful, I think, just to sort of hear what that 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 difference is, um, you know, practically for an, an investor, what does that actually mean? I mean, you know, if there are these price discrepancies, is it just mean that you know, it's subject to, to frankly, more uh, parties out there in the market who are maybe shorting or going long because of the uh, gap between the, the, the prices and the underlying? I think actually what it means most is that the prices are really just dictated by the market. A lot of investors would actually liken it in some instances more to a closed end structure because GBTC today not being an ETF doesn't operate a redemption program. One of the great features of an ETF is the fact that there are embedded in the ETF structure the ability for market participants to both create more shares of the ETF 
and also reduce the supply of shares of the ETF. And it's those forces that are inherent to ETFs that keep the shares trading in line with the underlying asset that it holds. And that's the feature that we're really fighting for for GBTC to have. So there is in part this this liquidity question, right? So, you know, just just the ability for people to even be able to redeem their shares is 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 one of the 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 challenges. Well, I don't think liquidity is actually an issue for GBTC and I'm curious for Craig's thoughts as well. I mean, today GBTC is one of if not consistently the most liquid security on the over-the-counter market here in the US, right? So it trades with peers like Roche, Adidas, all kinds of other companies that are listed here in the US on the OTC market, but are not yet listed on a national exchange like NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, and we're actually often doing analysis to see how would GBTC stack up if it were an ETF today. And on a trading volume basis, it's frequently in the top 10 of other largest commodity trusts in the world, like Spider Gold Trust, um, IEU, which is the, the iShares Gold Trust, um, the Silver Trust. So um, for, for trading purposes, for AUM purposes, it stacks up right alongside the largest uh, commodity-based ETFs in the world. So, so I guess I'll have one last question before we get into more, more of the uh, sort of legal questions. But, you know, people can already, you know, access Bitcoin, at least theoretically, you know, through Coinbase and, and other kinds of outlets. You know, what is it about uh, an ETF that makes that access different? Well, I think there's a couple of things and we only have limited time for this conversation. So I'll, I'll rattle them off quickly, Chris. I think certainly there's a certain level for investors of familiarity with the ETF wrapper. Um, this is being used by individual investors, being used by institutions, being used by financial advisors for all different kinds of exposures. Um, as opposed to thinking about buying Bitcoin directly where investors are opening up new accounts with you know, perhaps parties or companies that they're not as familiar with. Um, they have to link a bank account or a credit card to them. And it's not to say that there aren't fantastic players in the crypto space offering those services. It's just different. And from an ease of use perspective, most investors already have a brokerage account. And very importantly, as we're seeing more and more investors come into their prime earning years here in the US, they're also starting to invest for their retirement. And a really, really big feature of retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, et cetera, is often the ability to invest in mutual funds and stocks and ETFs, but often, almost entirely not possible, is the ability to invest in things like Bitcoin or other alternative assets. And so because GBTC is in fact a security with a QCIP, with audited financials and an SEC reporting company, it has certainly made its way and has been a very popular way for investors to invest in Bitcoin thinking about retirement allocations. This is super helpful, I think, for, for everyone listening. All right. So here you guys are. You know, we have this idea you know, of, of, of your um, Bitcoin trust you've set up. You, you want to move into offering an ETF. Uh, you make, you know, you have a lot of the, 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 the features, but not all of the features of, 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 of an ETF currently. And, you know, you take out your magic uh, keyboard and you write, uh, you know, a request to the SEC and make an application. Um, for an ETF, uh, but the SEC, in essence, uh, says no. And it was not too fond of the request, uh, even though the SEC had permitted uh, similar sort of futures ETFs, which 
I suppose in principle presents uh, uh, similar risks. And then uh, Grayscale, you guys sued the very next day, uh, or excuse me, the very same day when the SEC, the same night, same night, even (laughs) when the SEC decision was rendered. Okay. Craig, you are the lawyer. Uh, although, although Michael sounds like a lawyer sometimes. Maybe you can explain the lawsuit. Yeah, so I want to give the history of Bitcoin ETFs because I think it really elucidates the amazing amount of progress that we've seen um, both within the Bitcoin um, industry as well as on the SEC's side too. So Michael mentioned that GBTC launched in 2013 always with the aspirations of eventually converting into an ETF when permitted by the regulatory environment. Um, Fast forward to around 2016, which is where you really started to see the first bona fide effort of several Bitcoin, uh, proposed Bitcoin ETF issuers in front of the SEC trying to get approval for this type of product. And back then and still now, you have two kinds of Bitcoin ETFs. You have one that holds actual Bitcoin or spot Bitcoin, physical Bitcoin, like what GPTC does today. And then you have those that hold a derivative of Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures. And back then, the SEC either denied or asked to withdraw, or in Grayscale's case, we voluntarily withdrew all of the applications, which are called Form 19B4s, because of what the SEC cited as the potential for fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin markets to result in a vehicle that is not able to properly protect investors within the uh, the SEC's mandate. And if that's a concern, then it makes complete sense to deny both spot Bitcoin ETFs and Bitcoin futures ETFs because they're both deriving their pricing from the same underlying spot Bitcoin markets. So it makes sense to treat them the same. 2017, fast forward, Michael mentioned that we actually had the opportunity to be in front of the commission again, not in the context of seeking to convert GBTC into an ETF, but to make it an SEC reporting company. And that was a really good level of constructive engagement we had with the commission. Um, We were getting very sophisticated questions around how Bitcoin works, how it trades, how we custody it, um, how we account for it. Um, how our pricing index works, all these like really important questions that resulted in enhanced disclosures for our investors so that they could have a more transparent um, and really more robust type of vehicle. That was 2020. Fast forward to the summer of 2021, and we started to hear really exciting and interesting statements from the chair of the SEC, Chair Gensler, in that he expressed receptivity to Bitcoin ETFs, provided that they would hold Bitcoin futures and provided that they would be in a 40-act wrapper. Um, That was interesting because, one, it's amazing to see, you know, even more progress from the SEC around Bitcoin ETFs. But it was interesting because um, how can there be, you know, comfort to one kind of Bitcoin ETF but not another, given that, if you recall, they're both deriving the pricing of the same underlying markets and therefore expose that same kind of risk. And so we were listening to this, um, getting ready to see, you know, what would come of it. And in October of 2021, the first Bitcoin futures ETF under the 40 Act, that's BITO, started trading. That same day, we refiled our Form 19 before because to us, that was the key date that signified that the commission must now be okay with all Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin futures and spot Bitcoin ETFs. Um, A couple of days later, 
And we actually saw the first subsequent denial of a spot Bitcoin ETF. And that's where we started to think, well, now we potentially have a situation where the commission is violating the Administrative Procedure Act um, by treating two similar investment products dissimilarly, as well as the Exchange Act by discriminating against issuers. And so what that resulted in was um, we and Davis Paul putting together a letter that really started to lay out that argument that ultimately become building blocks for the litigation that we subsequently filed. And you might say, well, you know, what was the, the commission's reasoning for treating these two products differently? And back then it was a citation of the distinctions of the 40 Act versus the 33 Act. And so here I think it's important for listeners to know that for a Bitcoin futures ETF, you can either register it under the Investment Company Act of 1940 or the Securities Act of 1933, whereas for a spot Bitcoin ETF, you have to register it under the 33 Act because it's holding commodities and not securities and therefore can't be under the 40 Act. And so the commission was saying, well, the 40 Act has its own kind of standards that we apply differently versus the 33 Act. And the 40 Act has added investor protections that the 33 Act doesn't necessarily have. And we explained in our letter with Davis Polk that these were really distinctions without a difference in the context of Bitcoin ETFs, because although it's true that the 40 Act does have added investor protections, um, which are at the fund level, so it requires things like certain types of accounting, restrictions on borrowing, um, qualified, qualified custody, board independence, all certainly great for investors, but they say nothing about the underlying assets and underlying trading. And so again, if you're concerned about pricing in the underlying spot Bitcoin markets, no amount of 40, prote 40 Act protection at the fund level will protect against what's happening at the underlying market level. So that was the argument we were making then. Yeah, Chris, I know that you have a question about that. Professor Saul, uh, you know that, that that was actually a very useful um, uh, sort of introduction, and and I, I did actually have have one question here, right? So again, just for purposes for for the audience, you know, so here you have the SEC saying, all right, you have to intervene here with 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 the Forty Act, and as as you said, a Forty Act registration would impose things like limits on leverage and and on custody, you know, or, or at least rules for qualified custodianship and the like. Um, and and to your point, I think it is kind of interesting, in part because if the issue is manipulation or manipulability, then those aren't necessarily going to be solved, you know, with those kinds of um, regulatory re requirements, uh, which can, can be a little bit confusing. But OK, so but even putting all that aside, you know, uh, why not then just register under under the 40 Act? Is, Great is it So. In order to register under the 40 Act, the fund has to be primarily invested in securities. And because Bitcoin is not a, is not a security, it's a commodity, um, you cannot register a spot Bitcoin ETF as a 40 Act fund. And so this is actually another really good point because following that initial 40 Act Bitcoin futures ETF, the next April in 2022, we had another issuer in front of the SEC seeking to register a Bitcoin futures ETF, not under the 40 Act, but the 33 Act. Because if you recall, you can choose which act you want to register under. It's just the issuer's choice based on their business model and what type of wrappers that they're comfortable with. And we were watching this very closely because on the one hand, if the SEC denied that ETF, well, you can still rely on this 40 Act versus 33 Act distinction. Whereas if it was approved, 
then you can't really use that argument anymore and you need some other justification. And this was the Tucrium ETF, which actually ended up getting approved. And so now you're saying, well, what is the reasoning behind this approval? Um, the next new argument was, well, that ETF holds CME traded Bitcoin futures, which trade on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which itself is regulated by the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. And so because of that added regulation and surveillance the CFTC has with the CME, that is a distinction that we are making between Bitcoin futures versus spot Bitcoin. Again, we said that is another distinction without a difference in the context of Bitcoin TF approvals and denials, because similar to how the 40 Act protects the fund level, but not the underlying market level, the CFTC certainly has oversight over CME traded Bitcoin futures. But because those futures are deriving their pricing from the underlying spot Bitcoin markets, any surveillance there either can protect against fraud and manipulation in the underlying spot Bitcoin markets, or it can't. It's one or the other. And so we filed another Davis Polk letter making that argument. So that was around April of 2022. And we started to think that we actually might unfortunately be denied. And so we wanted to make sure that we were ready for any possible scenario. And so that was when we engaged Don Verrilli, the former Solicitor General under the Obama administration, um, because we're thinking, you know, if we're going to be in a situation where we might have to file a petition for review with the SEC, we want somebody who is the best lawyer in the world, who has been in the U.S. government, um, you know, knows how that thinking works and just has that level of you know, legal acumen. Um, so we engaged on. Um, he's also just a great guy. Um, we're doing a, an event with him this coming week that uh, we're going to you know, make public. So that'll be really good to see. And so um, Don came on board. And then that June, when we hit the final date for our 19B4 application, we unfortunately were denied. And so that same night, we filed something called a petition for review, which is the document that challenges that SEC disapproval order. Um, we filed it in the DC circuit. And so that was the beginning of the litigation that we are now involved in. Yeah. So when, when you look then at the denial, right, and, and, you know, so here you are making a request for a certain kind of an ETF with certain kinds of, you know, certainly regulatory requirements that have to be fulfilled, whether or not you're talking about a 33 Act um, ETF or a 40 Act ETF. So for lack of a better word, uh, you know, heightened standards, uh, r regardless, um, you, you know, obviously you and the SEC will have different opinions as to which of the two um, is, is better. But, you know, when you kind of zone out from a 10,000 foot level, ultimately this dispute uh, reflects an inability to sort of for the market to, to create a kind of a regulated uh, product. In your opinion, you know, what does this mean? And, and Michael, maybe I'll ask you, you know, like, what does this actually mean then for investors? And then obviously for the question of investor protection, from your standpoint, you know, when you introduce, you know, a regulated product, on the one hand, it is a gateway to more people, but it is also, you know, it introduces another layer of, of, of supervision. But what does this mean sort of practically? Yeah, listen, Chris, I think there's not much to say other than it's a reflection of the fact that our regulator um, is shunning the opportunity to bring an innovative technology closer under their watch and more importantly, closer to their actual day-to-day -day mandate, which is to protect investors, right? I think something that has been quite ironic is that the SEC has repeatedly now been encouraging crypto market participants to quote unquote, 
come in and register and come in and talk to them. And in the case of Grayscale, we actually did come in and we actually did come in and register. And we did so voluntarily. And we actually did so before the SEC started calling on the crypto market participants to come in and register. And despite the fact that we came in and registered, we're still unable to move the ball forward towards a product structure that we know is battle tested and that investors want and would better protect them. Um, that is a terrible place for us to be. And it's a terrible place for us to be when you zoom out beyond just the US. A lot of the conversation we're having in DC is actually thinking about whether or not American competitiveness is being challenged because of the way the SEC is treating the crypto asset class as a whole. And is America losing out to other geographies that have been faster and more swift to actually create new rules and new regs that not only account for the unique attributes of crypto assets, but actually are, as a result of that, you know, encouraging companies to move their businesses or services out of the U.S. into other jurisdictions. Are, are, are there other jurisdictions that you're seeing, you know, for being more active or successful or where you're seeing, you know, ETFs? Um, well, uh, certainly. Yeah. I mean, there's a, several ETF, you know, crypto ETFs in Canada and Brazil. There's tons of, you know, crypto related listings in various geographies throughout Europe and now Southeast Asia, places like Hong Kong and others. And, you know, regardless of those listings, you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that the U.S. is the, the hub, is the center of, you know, capital markets on a global level. And um, this is an opportunity that we should not be passing by. This is an opportunity we should be embracing, right? It's important to remember regulators like the SEC, their, their business is not to tell investors what to and what not to invest in. They're a disclosure regulator. And that means ensuring that all the disclosures are there so that investors can make informed investing decisions. And that's really where things should start and stop. Yeah. And, you know, the U.S. is the financial center of the world in large part because of the regulations that we have that both protect investors and facilitate capital formation. And those other examples of spot Bitcoin ETFs around the world, I think are really good proof points that this product can exist, it can function, it can mitigate against risk um, as just further support for why we should be able to approve it here in the US. And you know, we have nothing but respect for the SEC. We've had very constructive dialogue over the years. I mentioned the context of having GBTC becoming an SEC reporting company, and they certainly have a difficult job. This is a new asset class that has been around for a little over 10 years. Um, it's only been trading on marketplaces for even less than that. And so we understand that it will take time, but we really think that the incremental steps that have been made towards Bitcoin ETFs with Futures and 40 Act and then 33 Act, the natural next step is to allow a spot Bitcoin ETF under the 33 Act. And the commission really does have the tools to get them there based on existing regulations. Um, it's unfortunate that we have this dispute and we have to pursue um, this petition for review in the DC circuit, um, but it's really just a you know, mutually respectful disagreement that we have over this particular issue. Obviously, you know, we're seeing quite a few complaints in the industry about you know, um, government taking either its time or being a little bit slower when it comes to the introduction of new uh, uh, products. You know, is there anything in your view that's overlapping here with what you're hearing elsewhere, particularly in banking, say with the custodial bank situation? Um, or do you think that uh, the regulators, or the, in this particular case, the SEC, you know, it, it, that's starting from a different vantage point, 
um, you know, when you look at the macro regulatory environment, um, what's what's your sense uh, as to sort of how your situation maybe compares to others? Yeah, I mean, what I would say to that, and this is a question that often comes up um, when we're talking to investors, when we're talking to regulators, when we're talking to policymakers, and there are certainly d- big, difficult questions about crypto that will take time to answer. Um, but one common one is which digital assets are securities or commodities or currencies or something else, because there's such a large spectrum of use cases. And in the US, we have many different regulators that cover different use cases. Those are difficult questions that require a lot of thought to be put into. But our issue, a spot Bitcoin ETF, you're talking about the ETF vehicle, which just celebrated its 30th year. It's very well understood. It's one of the best ways to invest in any asset class. Married with Bitcoin, the oldest digital currency that similarly at this point is very well understood, I would say, from a regulatory clarity perspective, from a use case perspective, from how it trades, from how you account for it. And so we think our issue is just very simple and straightforward. Um, So I think that's how we sort of fit within, you know, other regulatory issues. And while it may seem very specific and narrow, it'll have such overreaching benefits for the whole asset class because you will bring Bitcoin further into the regulatory perimeter by having it listed on a U.S. national securities exchange. And in a time where we've seen what happens when you don't have these more regulated ways to access crypto, investors are still going to pursue it, but they're going to go outside the U.S. and we're going to see what happened with things like the FTX international fallout. So you had mentioned that that right now you're before the uh, D.C. Circuit Court, which it's kind of interesting. I mean, you're, you're already in, in, in the circuit court. And, and I think that largely people have an impression that, um, you know, cases and litigation, that that takes years, you know, uh, for a resolution and that people get really bogged down before any kind of decision is, is, is going to be rendered. But um, in, in this case, you know, what's the timing looking like when you, in terms of getting answers from the courts? What, what are you seeing? Yeah, so this is a really interesting procedural point that I think some of your uh, law school listeners um, will find interesting if they're taking CivPro but, or administrative law. Um, so because we are involved in a challenge of a federal agency decision, we bypass the district court level and go straight to the appellate court level. The district court level is where you have discovery and fact-finding. And so that's why you often will see years and years of, of motion practice occur before you even get to the substantive issues. We've bypassed that. And so the case is just about the record, which is um, the 19 before application we filed, the 11,500-plus uh, comment letters that were received uh, which was a record in the context of ETF rule change proposals. Um, 99.9% of them were all in favor. A lot of good substance there, a lot of really diverse perspectives. Um, the commission's disapproval order, and then our opening brief, their reply brief, our reply brief, and the other documents have been filed with the DC circuit. And that's it. That's all the judges will be reviewing when they come to this decision of uh, question over law, which is, did the commission violate the APA and the Exchange Act in approving Bitcoin futures ETFs and denying Grayscale's spot Bitcoin ETF. Um, so that's the yeah, that's where we are in, like, in the context of the, uh, the DC Circuit Appellate Court. And then 
Um, we recently got the date for our oral arguments. It's March 7th, so rapidly approaching. Um, right now, we're getting ready with Don and his team and just preparing for that. Um, we have the three judges panel selection, so things are moving at a, a really good pace. Um, we're thinking we could have a final decision of the appellate court by the fall. So, so Michael, I'm going to have you uh, have the uh, last word here. I mean, uh, we know when you look back, and obviously your opinion will evolve, especially over the next week or so. But I mean, w- when you just look at this entire experience, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit curious. You know, you're you're now running the the show over at Grayscale. I mean, what's what's been your impression um, of just the experience? You know, uh, you know, you, you you've sunk a lot of time, obviously, and in, in, in effort with with Craig into, into sort of getting and pushing on this particular issue. Um, has it has it given you any new insight for the positive or, or, or to the worse about not just regulation, but really the interaction or the, you know, how, w- what it takes to, to, to move uh, the administrative state or markets uh, forward. Yeah, I appreciate it, Chris. I would say it's really been the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, I've been at Grayscale virtually since day one. So that's about nine years at this point. Um, and I will say that in reflecting on it, it has been unbelievable to see how fast um, crypto has has caught up with the rest of the world, um, how much faster I think things um, solidified and matured even, you know, faster than we could have ever dreamed of it. Um, I couldn't be prouder of the team I've put together in the business that we've built. And um, I got to say that even though we're nine years into it, um, it still feels like early days, um, and we got a lot of work left in front of us. So I am optimistic that um, we're still in the early innings of where crypto is going, and certainly in the early innings of where Grayscale is going. And when I think about priorities for the year, it's certainly not just going to be this lawsuit, um, but continuing to advocate for the asset class. I do think legislation will pass this year around crypto. And, um, you know, the things that we're excited about today are great, but what's really exciting is all the use cases that are going to be unlocked around crypto that we haven't even seen or thought about, um, which was the case 24 months ago and will certainly be the case 24 months from now. Well, Michael Craig, thanks so much for uh, joining the show. I'm really looking forward to having you back in the in the spring then for a little bit of a debrief and, and, to, and to get your thoughts. Uh, but this has been very helpful. Thanks for having us. So those of you in the audience will notice that I didn't spend the habitual time asking about whether or not Bitcoin is a good or bad investment. The fact is, it really kind of depends. If you invested five years ago, you're probably pretty happy. One year ago, probably pretty sad. And a couple of months ago, well, pretty happy again. Five years from now, who the heck knows? Now, the Bitcoin decision is hard because some individuals are rightly concerned about what it means to make volatile products like crypto available to the broader public. And for good reason. Recent news cycles about the fragility and failures in crypto markets should give anyone pause. Still, there is no risk without reward, and every portfolio should be diversified. As I've said before, modern portfolio theory has long suggested that every person's basket of investments should include a heavy dose of exposure to low-risk assets, a good mix of medium-risk assets, and a modicum of exposure to risky assets that may fail or offer outsized gains. 
Now, this last category, the risk bucket category, might not be crypto. It may be private company shares or a mix of real estate. But I do think the government should be in a position to enable every investor to truly diversify and in safe ways. Now, whether or not the Grayscale ETF is one of those cases is something that we'll only see in the upcoming months. But I do think that both the market and regulators must accept both the sober appreciation for what it takes to protect investors and a realistic and adult understanding that risk is an inherent and indeed necessary aspect of investing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.